Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Students Talk Security podcast series. My name is Nick Carter, and I'm an undergraduate studying political science, international security, and business economics at the University of Notre Dame. Today on the podcast, we're discussing the future of counterterrorism in the context of a Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. Here with us is Mike McGarity, who served as the FBI's Assistant Director for Counterterrorism, managing the Bureau's global counterterrorism operation for two years between 2018 and 2019. Mr. McGarity's 23-year tenure with the FBI began when he joined the New York field office in 1996, where he investigated violent gangs, drug organizations, and international money laundering networks. In 2003, he moved to the New York Joint Terrorism Task Force, where he participated in numerous international terrorism investigations. Over the next decade and a half, Mr. McGarity served in a number of critical leader positions at the Bureau. He was the FBI's supervisory special agent at the CIA's Counterterrorism Center, the deputy on-scene commander, commander in Afghanistan, the assistant section chief for the counterterrorism division of the International Terrorism Operations Section, the director of counterterrorism at the White House's National Security Council, and the FBI's legal attache in Switzerland. In 2015, he became the first director of the U.S. Hostage Recovery Fusion Cell, a complex multi-agency task force dedicated to recovering American hostages abducted abroad. He has been recognized by the president and director of the FBI, Christopher Wray, for his work. Mr. McGarity holds a JD and a BA in economics from the Catholic University of America. He's a graduate of the Government Senior, Exec Senior Executive Program in National Security at the Harvard Kennedy School and Northwestern Kellogg's Navigating Strategic Change Program. He's currently a member of the Atlantic Council's Counterterrorism Working Group and the International Association of Chiefs of Police Committee on Counterterrorism. He's worked in the private sector since 2020. Thanks so much for being here, Mike. Thanks, Nick. And, uh, you know, Thank you very much for the invitation. I know uh, it's a busy weekend for you in school and, and football and everything. So thanks for the opportunity to talk to you. And from my perspective, um, really do appreciate and admire what you're doing um, while you're in college, looking at the national security threats that are current and emerging. Because the only way you're going to learn is learn from our mistakes You know, at any given time. So when you're a future leader, which I have no doubt you will be in the national security space for the US government, uh, you, you'll have some great uh, context and, and again, lessons learned and best practices. Yeah, no, definitely. Always uh, trying to learn from the people who have walked the road and very few people have done it as well as you have. So it's awesome to have you here today. So I, I guess we'll just get right into it. Um, the first thing, kind of discussing the Taliban takeover and the future of counterterrorism that I want to look into, is kind of discussing a little bit about how things got to where they are. So it's been reported that reliable intelligence in the months leading up to the withdrawal suggested that the Taliban were capable of swiftly regaining control of Kabul and the nation at large. So do you think that there was somewhat of a disconnect between the intelligence community and policymakers, or might the president have ignored intelligence reports? How did this happen? Sure. I think first to, I mean, certainly all great questions to get into, but I think it's very important. It's something I didn't know until I went to Afghanistan and saw it firsthand the first time. You have to understand the geography and, and the history of Afghanistan because it matters, right? History does matter and so does geography. Afghanistan is a landlocked country uh, with the Hindu uh, Kish Mountains. Now, when you look at the mountain range in Afghanistan, you're talking mountaintops in 20,000 plus feet. We're here in the US, the Rockies. We think it's big to have a 14,000 footer, right? So just that part, just geographically landlocked between two countries, uh, certainly uh, of importance to the US government, Iran and Pakistan. So strategically located, mount, huge mountain range, 
and landlocked. So you have that piece there. But historically, it's been invaded going way back to Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, uh, the British Empire several times, Soviet Union, and the, and the US and NATO forces more recently in the last, obviously, 20 years ago. And that's important because when you're in Afghanistan, compared to Iraq, where you saw streets with right corners, a culture, a society that was very far back. And so as invaders came and left, Afghanistan really hasn't changed that much over the years. And I think that's important from its culture and its, its ability to snap back, if you will, either one, after defeating the foe that invaded, or two, just outlasting them, which they did in this case uh, with the US withdrawal. So I just, to set the context there, but, um, the Afghan people, you know, with those invasions uh, have snapped back, at least the Taliban uh, would, and, and it reverted back to where it was because that's what it knows. Do, was it intelligence failure, a coordination failure? I certainly think, um, in, in my experience with the military and certainly the military leaders that were in Afghanistan in the last couple of years, were, were some of the best in the US government and the military. So absolutely there was a plan if you will, uh, for withdrawal. I think the plan's been there for, you know, and continuously being updated iterations, assessments, both intelligence and assessments how to go out. I think the notice was given to U.S. citizens. I do. I mean, people might have stayed, but I do believe if, if you're a U.S. citizen in Afghanistan, you got the sense after the election that, you know, obviously if, if you want to get out, you could have back then. Those that waited, they waited at their peril. I do think we owe an obligation to those who helped us to get out, but certainly um, the warning signs were there. Now, was it a disconnect uh, between the intelligence community and the policymakers? You know, uh, certainly I'm not um, uh, the president. I, I do think most people in the space, in the national security space, absolutely thought the Taliban would regain control. I mean, we wouldn't have had those talks in Doha over the last couple of years for the peace agreement unless we thought that to be the case. Mm -hmm. Now, how quickly that came back into, uh, how quickly they got into Kabul in, in a matter of days and weeks as opposed to months could be debated, but I certainly think your experts thought that was gonna happen eventually because we've been supporting, we, the US government have been supporting uh, the Afghan government for so long. And that that quick pullout, if you will, even though everyone knew it was coming, obviously it just, it was a house of cards that fell very quickly. Um, so I do think people realized the Taliban was gonna take Kabul. The, the timing of it, um, certainly debate. I almost think it doesn't matter because we'd be at the same state right now if it was days, weeks, or months where we are now. We'd be in the same state with the Taliban-controlled Afghanistan uh, with, without money, frozen assets, over 9 billion in U.S. assets frozen, or 9 billion in Afghan assets frozen. Uh, you're going into a winter. The winters are harsh in Afghanistan. And so we'd be right back where we are on the verge of a humanitarian crisis uh, in Afghanistan with, with lack of food, uh, government workers not being paid, and we're right back where we are. So you could debate the days and weeks, but we'd be right where we are, I think, either way today, uh, coming into November, a couple of months after, whether it was quickly in days or weeks or months, we'd be right where we are with the Taliban in control. Yeah, no, that's, that's I think, a very astute insight. And I think that's something that a lot of the commentary is missing, where timeline is not the most important thing here, kind of looking at the outcomes. 
Um, I want to go back a little bit to what you mentioned earlier with the history being so important. Um, obviously, you being in the counterterrorism space at that time towards the beginning of the occupation, there it seems like the kind of scholarly consensus around that time is that there was a very single-minded focus pre-9-11, retribution. How much discussion did you hear about kind of the timeline going forwards? Was there a lot of anticipation that this engagement in Afghanistan, either from the intelligence community side or more broadly, was going to be something that just kind of pro progressed forwards for decades and, and eventually two decades? And at that point, getting into the discussion of previous failures throughout history that you mentioned earlier, or was it more just, we're going to go in, we have a few essential strategic objectives, and we're going to pursue those objectives, and we'll be out within a matter of months or years, perhaps, but certainly not two decades. So I think in the early times, uh, when I was working, you know, when I first started counterterrorism, it was literally 9-11. Um, I wasn't in a position to see the policy as much. It wasn't until about 2005 when I started to see that um, when I came down to Washington, D.C. and had a headquarters assignment. I would say from that early on, there was so much, I mean, um, retribution. There was certainly anger from being attacked. I don't think people were thinking uh, decades per se. I think they were looking to uh, disrupt this terror network, Al-Qaeda, and make sure it never happens again. And that obviously took a long time uh, to do that. I think you could argue fairly successful from a military objective. Um, but a military objective is different than a diplomatic objective, right? The, the military is not responsible for uh, building up uh, nation states and, and infrastructure. They can do it as tasked, uh, but that's, you know, th that's other parts of the U.S. government, other nations, obviously the world, the U.N. and others. So I think we did take the burden on for that. Um, I do think, you know, there, there's been a lot of progress in Afghanistan, um, but probably not as much as everyone would have liked, obviously, where we are. I think at that point, if you're looking at it from the practitioners who were in the CT, the Global War on Terrorism, if you will, uh, the GWAT, I don't think people were thinking that as much. Certainly, whether it's FBI or your, your operators or your intelligence officials who were, who were really just focused in on stopping the next threat. And, mm -hmm. and that was certainly, you know, in 2004 and five. at that point, we started seeing Al-Qaeda external operations. Certainly, there's the... Um, the continued and sustained threat against US, but we started to see that threat getting to Europe. We started to see it hitting the UK, London, uh, in um, the subway, the, the, you know, the train bombings, the uh, airline threats in 2006. And then we were almost here in the US about four or five years after that. So again, 10 years after Al-Qaeda coming into 2009, 2010, we started to see Al-Qaeda operatives and inspired coming into the US uh, with external operations and planned attacks. And they were thwarted in New York City. I think about Najib Bulazazi with, with the threat uh, into New York City with the subway. I think about Faisal Shahzad in Midtown Manhattan with, with the um, IED in his car. Those were all inspired external operations from Al-Qaeda, Tariq Taliban, TTP into the US. And you know that's a decade later. So I, don't, I still think at that time, you're now in 2009, 2010, no one's thinking about what's the end game, at least on the operational side. 
Uh, on the diplomatic side, likely, I hope they were. Um, but again, administrations keep changing. And so one plan, you know, as, as we as we saw and can see, can shift with another administration. So I don't think on the practitioner side, people were thinking that. They were thinking about how do you stop the next threat and what do we need to do to make sure this never happens again? Yeah, certainly that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think when thinking about horizons, it's, it's difficult to do that when you're in a space of just focusing on the next threat and that's your job to do. Um, so in, in some ways, there, there seems like this, this threat prevention process is perennial, whereas the nation building process is external and beyond that. And at some point, they need to interact and communicate, but that's a difficult thing to do. So. Yeah, and, and you got to look at Afga Afghanistan. Forget about just the geography being a landlocked country in the mountains. You know uh, how women were treated differently, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, education, uh, all those things, um, censorship, censorship as to any media coming in in those days. You cannot build a society unless you have educated people, unless you have roads that have, can ha I say right turns, angles to them and, and um, organization and process. And that just wasn't there. There was more tribal, uh, more regionally focused uh, and certainly even ethnic within that, you know, the Pashtuns and others. I mean, there's, there's certainly some within Afghanistan, if you go back to the warlords and everything, there, there's certainly, different fractions. So if you don't have a national identity and you have more of a tribal identity, I think it's harder, which they had. And, you know, if you're not an educated society, whatever, however you define that education, um, it's going to be much harder to build a, a productive society that can have a sustaining government to provide services for its people. Yeah, no, and I think you touch on one of the reasons that the Taliban has been able to regain control so quickly just because of the nature of the society and the structural realities, a top-down government that's kind of transplanted onto this society is not going to work if it doesn't acknowledge the tribal, the, the distinct nature of the tribal reality on the ground. And so I think the Taliban, obviously, you might have some more insight on this than I would have, but I think the Taliban do a very good job at leveraging that, well, one, they're from Afghanistan, they understand what it is, they understand the tribal differences, they know how to navigate things like local warlords, and how to kind of cooperate with those people in a way that gives them power. Um, and I think that when you're making a, trying to transplant a government out of the society, you can't ignore those realities. Yeah, so. but I, what a challenge they're going to have now, because then it was tribal. There's enough there in place in Kabul and, and some, some of the other uh, cities and regions that have been built up. They're now responsible for governing and they don't have that funding I talked about, that 9 billion plus. Mm -hmm. So they do have to provide those services, security, food, water, the staples uh, for any society. And so the burden's on them to get that done. And they're not postured right now to do that without some external help, whether it's from the UN, food, uh, water, health, Hospitals don't have the supplies they need. Um, a great article in the Wall Street Journal today about that, just the, the infrastructure that's needed to progress, certainly through the winter with your staples of medicine, food, um, uh, paternity care, you know, uh, birth, all those things are not in place. And so you're, as, you, as you have that, now the responsibility of government is there with the Taliban, and they've never really had that before. Mm -hmm. uh, nationally. And so it's going to be a huge challenge for them. And at the same time, they have to, they, they want to, or at least they say they do, 
want that credibility on the national stage. They want they want recognition, acknowledgement. So they got to do certain things well, at least in these early months to year, to get that credibility and to get build that trust with the international community. Yeah, no, certainly I, I, that is the task for the Taliban and it'll be interesting to see how much credibility they can win over the next couple of months. It's interesting though, that they have a very specific plan of governance that they, they or, or a specific ideology that they'd like to implement. So their task is almost two-sided here where they need to provide the fundamentals, but at the same time, they have a very specific ideology that they're trying to engulf the nation in. Um, so in thinking about the, the natures of Taliban thought and Taliban ideology, I kind of want to move more into the discussion of what everybody's been talking about with the Taliban taking control again. Um, the idea that with a Taliban-controlled Afghanistan, there is the threat that it might once again sponsor an Al-Qaeda-like group that is interested in terrorizing the United States. I mean, you mentioned even 10 years after 9-11, there were Al-Qaeda individuals and operatives launching car bombs, trying to attack the United States in New York City. Do you think that today's Al-Qaeda or today's Taliban is capable of sponsoring an Al-Qaeda like the Al-Qaeda that we saw before 9-11? I certainly think it's capable. I mean, and so I, but I, I think it's, it's going to be interesting to see, and they're going to have to show their cards fairly soon. On one hand, from the Doha agreements, they have made an agreement and they've even recently reiterated that agreement that they will not allow a safe, they will not allow Afghanistan to be a safe haven for terrorist networks like Al-Qaeda. That was part of the original agreement with the prior administration. They've reiterated that agreement uh, even more recently. That said, they have done some things that are alarming. So they have a senior Haqqani uh, network, which is one of the most violent networks in Afghanistan at times against US troops in their senior leadership. And why that's of concern is those Haqqani leaders have those connections back to core Al-Qaeda senior leadership, uh, likely that are in, honestly, the other thing we're not talking about, Al-Qaeda never went away, they just moved, right? Mm -hmm. So likely senior leaders in Iran and Pakistan, uh, their, their numbers are just as high, if not higher, again, I've been the governor a while, than they were pre-9-11. So they actually have more people, they're just dispersed and to, to say dormant is they're laying low in the tall weeds waiting for an opportunity. Will the Taliban allow that opportunity for them to come back in? That remains to be seen. But I am concerned with a Haqqani leader, a senior Haqqani leader in, in the Taliban government uh, would give me concern that they would be permissive. I don't think they'll ever, um, to use your word, sponsor. I don't think they will sponsor Al-Qaeda into Afghanistan. I don't think that would be prudent form in any way, matter, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. But whether they can say they're against it and allow it, or even be against it, but not be successful enough that Al-Qaeda can come in. And the reason I say that is, again, the Al-Qaeda senior leadership's right there. You have the Pakistan, the Fatah, the federal administrative tribal areas where a lot of Al-Qaeda uh, operatives would go during the winter and then come back into Jalalabad and down into parts of Afghanistan. You have Iran where there's senior leaders likely. And so I do think it can happen. And even if they push back, can they, can they control it and disrupt it? What we know is ISIS-K has moved in, and that was obviously before even the U.S. withdrawal, and they're having their issues with ISIS-K, and we saw as early as this morning, U.S. time, uh, another attack in downtown Kabul. So the Taliban has its hands full with ISIS-K. Could Al-Qaeda 
and even Trig Taliban, TTP out of Pakistan come in and use as a safe haven? Um, I think it could. Even if they're trying to keep them out, will they be successful? So I don't think they'll sponsor them. Will they be permissive? They might, time will tell. But even if they take a strong action, are they capable of keeping Al-Qaeda out? And I, I don't know the answer to that, but you know, it doesn't take much for what we've learned over 20 years for Al-Qaeda or any terrorist network to go into Afghanistan and seek refuge in Torbor or any of the caved areas and be off the radar. So certainly could happen. So do you think, considering the numbers of Al-Qaeda operatives in Pakistan, in Iran, do you think the calculus now changes for them, where they're looking at Afghanistan as an opportunity? Or do you think they stay kind of on the fringes in Pakistan, in Iran, doing what they're doing right now, waiting for structural realities to change, waiting for the Taliban to become more credible on the international scene. How does that play out on the side of these organizations? I think they would move back into Afghanistan if they saw it as an opportunity that they, that they needed to uh, take. In other words, if you're a senior leader and you're in Iran per se, if that's where you are and you, you have safe haven there, you have your families taken care of, you have probably better amenities than you would if you were in Afghanistan, maybe they stay. Um, likely not on the Pakistani side um, because it's just where they would likely be in that part of Pakistan and the Fatah, probably easier to be in Afghanistan. Um, they're gonna come in if they think there's an opportunity. And so far, we have not seen the flood of foreign fighters. You know, people, you know, commentators say, we haven't seen this flood of foreign fighters coming to Afghanistan. Well, let's remember, we have COVID, and, and COVID was the best thing that happened to international terrorism, certainly on the foreign fighter aspect. We, as we were defeating ISIS in Syria, there are foreign fighters that still need to get back to Europe, the United States, and other places, maybe even Afghanistan, that are limited and, and restricted to travel due to COVID. As those restrictions ease, as those COVID travel restrictions ease, will they come to Afghanistan? And so maybe that's a couple months out until we see that uh, with the COVID travel restrictions. Maybe they don't come into Afghanistan as far as a leadership node, but certainly as an operational node and training that could happen. And that would allow the leaders, whether they're in Pakistan or Iran, to come in and come out uh, freely uh, in, into uh, Afghanistan. What we saw as people were leaving, and I think you're going to have a refugee problem uh, come wintertime in Afghanistan with the food supply. What we did see, everyone thought the Taliban would be uh, harsher in land movements uh, going to Pakistan. And certainly there were checkpoints along the route from Kabul to the, the, the Pakistani border, but we did not see the Taliban as much as the hindrance as we did uh, other, um, you know, on the Pakistani side as far as the border crossing. So remains to be seen. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. And I think it's pertinent here to mention a lot of commentators who discuss the idea of the shift in the epicenter of international terrorism away from Central Asia, Afghanistan, Pakistan in recent years and over the past decade, really towards places like Syria, places like um, <clears throat> the Southern part of the Arabian Peninsula, talking a lot about different groups, ISIS, um, al-Nusra, uh, different kind of agents and different organizations. These commentators seem to suggest that because of this shift of kind of the core of terrorism, this changes recently in um, Afghanistan are not so consequential. 
What would you say to those commentators? I think the shift, what we, I mean, it's, it's nothing new. The shift we saw to, um, to, to Syria, to Somalia, Ethiopia, all, you know, the um, different, we saw those shifts because the U.S. had a, a heavy presence in Afghanistan. So, I mean, foreign fighters had a hard time coming into Afghanistan uh, late 2000s, 2008 on. And so as I, Iraq and in, I, in Syria, uh, it was much easier flow of foreign fighters coming in. Hey, Nick, let me just get, stop the dog here for a second. Just no that one. So I, to answer your question, we saw other areas, um, almost a magnet, a lightning rod, if you will, for terrorist networks to go to. Uh, but if you think about it, we saw that after our presence in Afghanistan. So in 2007, we saw, you know, from the U.S. perspective, we saw uh, Ethiopian and um, Somalian second generation boys going back to Somalia to fight with Al-Shabaab. Uh, 2007, 2008, 2009. Even earlier than that, we saw homegrown violent extremists going to Syria. Uh, uh, actually, back then it was going to Yemen first, Iraq, then Syria. So we've seen that because they were safe havens. And if you think about it, Yemen, unstable government. Obviously, Iraq was an unstable government at the time, and then Syria. So where there's opportunities now in Africa, certainly they're going to go there. The question is, Will the Taliban and other um, initiatives keep the security in control in Afghanistan so it doesn't return and revert back to being a safe haven? I think that's the question. It can be anywhere. To me, the, the, the foreign fighter, which is the, the concern, be, becomes radicalized on the internet. It's, it's not necessarily a geographical, um, they're disenfranchised somewhere. You might, you know, one, one of the things that would be interesting to see over time is, I do think because of our time in Afghanistan, you're gonna wait about 10 years. You're gonna see a generation of people who are angry, right? They lost loved ones in the war, everything else. Where do they go? It may not be that they're fighting and training in Afghanistan. They might become foreign fighters going to another location because there's a new leader there, whether it's ISIS mm -hmm. or some you know, new offshoot of ISIS uh, from that. But again, they're likely gonna be radicalized locally or on the internet and then mobilize to violence where there's a leader, where there's a cause that they can get behind. And that could be anywhere. No, certainly. I think one of the questions here too is what role does theology play in all of this? And so is there a possibility that um, we're gonna see people who are radicalized without radical theology, who are solely interested in retribution after 20 years of Western involvement in the place that they call home. So I think there could be somewhat of a dynamic where you have a shift away from radicalization solely linked to theological ideas and something that's more closely related to just pure revenge almost. So yeah, I mean, you know, we've seen that. I mean, and I would say in the last seven years in the US, how we've defined and you've seen it more with domestic violent extremists here too, but as we've defined the threat in the United States, the number one priority threat, if you go back six, seven years ago uh, in the US was homegrown violent extremists. These are US born, radicalized in the US and disenfranchised for whatever means. Now, when you interviewed them after we arrested them for plotting or carrying out an attack, what was interesting to me 
they really were not astute in, in Islam. You know, you know, they were not really religious scholars by no means. They were disenfranchised, they had a grievance. And then as they radicalized, especially over the internet, they, we call it the salad bar, they would pick and choose whatever they wanted. And it was almost like they just wanted to go blow off steam and fight, right? Mm. So they would pick it. And, you know, we saw it. You saw that actually going back to, it's not a new phenomenon. We saw that going all the way back to the Mujahideen in Bosnia and Afghanistan uh, from disenfranchised men in, in New York City going over for those fights uh, to Afghanistan and Bosnia. And then certainly we saw it in Minneapolis in 2007, 2008. And you're seeing it here in the U.S., or we did, these homegrown violent extremists that, that, again, radicalized online or maybe through someone else and then mobilized to violence. But really, I, I've seen terrorists, uh, you know, who both uh, purport Hezbollah and white supremacy. Those are two <laughs> almost diametrically opposed, uh, you know, thoughts, uh, mm -hmm. ideologies, and yet really what they're looking for is to get and be part of something bigger than themselves and a cause to, to, to justify the violence that they're looking to pursue because they have a grievance. And certainly we saw that on the Islamic, uh, you, know, uh, you know, extremism and then homegrown violent extremism in the US. And then we're seeing it even honestly more recently in the last four or five years with domestic violent extremists here in the US, again, you know, uh, they're, they're angry, they're disenfranchised, they're radicalized more online now than they were in past on the domestic side and then acting towards violence. Certainly, yeah. So we're kind of running up on our time here. I just wanna get your thoughts on, on one last topic, um, bringing it back to Afghanistan, I guess bringing it back and then going beyond. The military is now out of Afghanistan um, and it's shifting its focus, it's realigning towards places like China and Russia, do you think that counterintelligence will do the same? It seems to me that the threats that the region, Central Asia, Middle East, North Africa region present are perennial threats. And so there will always be a counterintelligence and counterterrorism need there. But do you think that there will be a reshifting of priorities within the counterintelligence and counterterrorism community towards the places like China and Russia? Yeah, I mean, I think that's all I've been out of government for two years. I think that's already started to shift a couple of years ago, as mm. far as the if you look at intelligence, military, part of it is efficiencies in the counterterrorism fight. Honestly, we've gotten better at what we do better at the interagency process and detecting, deterring, disrupting uh, terrorist networks. But we I saw that shift even when I was in in the FBI, I saw that shift uh, back in 2018, 2019. So that shift has been ongoing. I think there's lessons learned from the counterterrorism fight that are now coming to counterintel, which is great on, mm -hmm. on the, you know, how hyper responsive and quick you have to be. And everything is cyber too. Like when we talk counterintelligence, China and Russia, it's not just counterintelligence, it's counterintelligence, Russia, there's criminal networks. It's, it's everything's kind of fused together, if you will. And even mm -hmm. domestic violent extremism extremism with the with the Russian uh, threat there. So I think that shift has occurred. Uh, the question is, as it's shifting, are we calibrating right on the counterterrorism threat? Are we taking too much away? Um, and so when you look at Afghanistan, when you look at Syria, and we, we talk about this over the horizon threat, 
uh, over the horizon collection, if you will, or response, um, our human collection will go down uh, in, by, by the nature of we don't have a platform to jump off of. So mm -hmm. in Afghanistan, if we don't have a huge US presence, it's very hard to talk to a, a human source or, or collect information if you're only meeting them every couple months, right? As opposed to being in country and being able to do that. So that type human collection and understanding will diminish our collection for sure. Uh, you cannot rely on technical collection only. You, 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 human collection, human interaction, talking to people is is really good information, uh, and, and obviously for assessments and and uh, countering terrorism. And you're gonna that that capability is just naturally gonna diminish over time. And the ability to get out hostages in in um, in in uh, denied areas, the ability to execute a military operation. You can do things from afar, but you're not doing it with the clarity and the information and uh, of of on scene of where you're going. It's you're 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 finding blind, more blind, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, in those areas. Can be done. It's just not to the same level of clarity. Yeah, and I think that's that's the concern, and that's what a lot of a lot of commentators are missing when discussing Afghanistan. So thank you so much for your time today, Mr. McGarity. Really appreciated talking to you. Um, thank you for joining the podcast. It's been awesome. So it's oh, thanks, Nick. I, I appreciate it. And good luck to you. I, I can't wait to see what you do in your national security career um, because I know you're going to do great things. The fact that you're even engaged on these topics and, and, and talking to people and trying to understand, I, I have no doubt you do well in your career. And, and I'll leave you with this. Go Irish. Go Irish. That's all for today's episode of the Students Talk Security Podcast. Thanks so much for listening in. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers not of the international security center or the university of notre dame which take no institutional position music for this podcast is licensed under sample swap